All right. Hello. Welcome, everyone, to the October 2019 Hashtag Exchange SA chat um, on dry needling, myofascial pain syndrome trigger points. So we have a lot to unpack here this evening. So we thank you all for joining us. I'm Kyle Stapleton, um, your Student Assembly Director of Communications. And we have the pleasure of being joined by Joe Donnelly. So, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome, Kyle. Glad to do it. Absolutely. So y'all tuning in, if you haven't been part of Exchange Chat before, you can interact on Facebook Live. Um, you know, definitely like, um, love, give whatever you whatever kind of reaction you want in the comments. Um, also, drop any questions that you have into the comments section. We'll definitely get those in the queue, and we'll hopefully get those answered for you. Also, yeah, there's a, a like already. We got a like already. Oh, look at that! You can see that, that too, right? Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> get them going early, you know. Right. Uh, so there's also a Twitter conversation happening right now as well. Um, just got to use hashtag Exchange SA. Um, check out the Twitter conversation happening. There's definitely going to be a lot of buzz going on um, throughout the whole student assembly. So, uh, so definitely check on that um, when you get a chance. So just some general announcements before we get started. So APTA National Student Conclave, I know I've been saying this to a lot for you guys, but we're all so pumped about it. October 31st, Halloween uh, through November 2nd, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Registration has been extended. So it's like a, it's a, this is like a new announcement that registration has been extended through 1030. Um, so October 30th, the day before the conference. Um, so give everyone some extra time if they haven't gotten their ticket yet or, you know, booked their flight. They have the opportunity to do so and purchase the registration through 1030. So that registration link will be dropped in the comments below. Um, so definitely uh, check that out if you're interested in coming down to the desert. Um, come party with all of us. Come learn down there. Um, we're all we're all super pumped about it. Also, uh, we've got some awesome programming happening. Uh, that link will be dropped in the comments as well. Awesome, awesome uh, educational sessions, PT in the ED, um, tri uh, dry needling, trigger point dry needling, awesome stuff that'll be there. So uh, check all that out. Um, also, 2019-2020 APTASA Board of Directors candidates have been announced. They've been announced for roughly two months now. Um, so there'll be a link dropped in the comments as well. If you want to go check out who's running for each individual position, you can read their candidate statements that are interlaid in there. And uh, whoever gets to attend National Student Conclave, they have, they have the opportunity to vote in their 2019-2020 APTA SA Board of Directors. So uh, make make wise choices when you're voting. Try to reach out to everyone, um, hear all their suggestions, hear all the, um, you know, all the passions and all the ideas they have for our association. Also, new news that we have going on, APTA, Catherine Worthingham Fellows, and Cardin Rehab, they're bringing an awesome, awesome scholarship to students, DPT students, um, for CSM 2020. That's going to be in Denver, Colorado. So that link and that scholarship is going to close, I believe, on October 8th. So October 8th, um, first 250 applications will be accepted and will be reviewed. Um, so definitely get your application in fast. Try to get it in quick. Um, and so those applications that are reviewed, you have to be within the two, the first 250 applications um, to have a shot at that. And they'll they'll be giving out two scholarships to uh, to CSM 2020. And I believe the monetary value is through the link that'll be dropped as well. So definitely take a look at that if you're heading to CSM, you want to um, dive into a scholarship opportunity. Um, definitely check that out because it's a it's an awesome uh, awesome scholarship to have. And we're really we're really pumped that the Catherine Worthingham fellows can bring that for us. And always, we're looking for Pulse contributors. So, you know, for more information um, or you have any suggestions for topics, um, just submit a blog piece or just email us at pulse at apta.org. Uh, we'd be happy to post it to, uh, to the Pulse blog and ask if uh, you have any other individuals that, uh, that want to contribute as well. So, yeah, so if you're joining us tonight, if you're a DPT student, PTA student, if you're a fresh PT or, you know, anyone else is joining us in the medical field, um, let us know in the comments. Um, let us know if you're a DPT student. Let us know who you are. Um, we'd love to see who's tuning in and um, and check that out. Um, so yeah, I think we're uh, we're we're 
ready to kind of kick off here. So I want to give Joe the opportunity to kind of talk about his background, uh, what got him interested in myofascial pain syndrome, trigger point dry needling, um, and also just trigger points in general. I know he wrote a book on it. So I'd love to give the floor to him to kind of, to kind of introduce that and, uh, and, you know, enlighten us to anything else that he has. Thanks, Kyle. Um, how I got interested in trigger points? Well, Dr. Dave Simons of Travell and Simons uh, was my mentor uh, for 10 years, about 10 years uh, here in Atlanta. Um, I was invited to, it's a funny story, I was invited to an in-service he was given uh, to some medical residents, and I was invited by another physician that knew I had already started working on trigger point myofascial pain, and I was seeing a lot of her patients. She invited me to go to this seminar at 6.45 in the morning, I showed up, he asked like three questions and I answered the questions and he looked at me and he says, you're a physical therapist, not a physician resident. I said, how did you know? He goes, you know your anatomy. So there you go, <laughs> you have to know your anatomy. <laughs> so I asked him to come in, uh, I was working at the Cab Medical Center in Atlanta. Uh, I was this program supervisor in outpatient rehab and I asked him to come to visit us and to mentor and the next week he showed up and knocked on my door, he goes, I said, Dr. Simons, what are you doing here? He goes, he asked me to come over and mentor you, so here I am. And so he came over every Tuesday for uh, like five years until I left, and I went to Sports Rehab Center, and he showed up there to mentor the clinicians there. So he's an awesome scientist, awesome uh, mentor, and I miss him dearly. Um, and uh, the Trigger Point Manual, the third edition, was uh, basically my commitment to him to finish his work um, that he had started before he passed. So that's how I got involved in my myofascial pain. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you want to, do you want to show us the book? Do you have that at hand over there? I do have it at hand by chance. I don't know if you can see it. You got it? Let, let's it see if I can. Uh... Pain dysfunction. So there it is, everyone. Myofascial pain dysfunction, trigger point manual. Um, one of our board members will drop the link in the, in the comments if you're interested in purchasing it. Um, I know Joe's done awesome, I'll awesome you, work. I'll out. give you a little advice. Uh, if you're listening, uh, watch Amazon. It's crazy. The price changes on a regular basis. I've seen it as cheap as 80 bucks. So, so watch Amazon for the, for the discounts. I don't know how it works, but they, they have lots of discounts on there. Awesome. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what the deal is with that. I also see kind of prices change on Amazon day to day. It's, it's, it's yeah. bizarre. It's an odd, it's an odd thing. I think they publish, they probably uh, purchase from China and then they just sell it however they want to sell it to get people into the website. Supply and demand type of thing. I, I hear you. I hear you. Exactly. Awesome. So I think uh, I think how we're going to kind of unpack this exchange chat. I think we'll kind of give roughly twenty minutes for dry needling, roughly twenty minutes for MPS, myofascial pain syndrome, and also twenty minutes for trigger points. And we can kind of interlay those topics together. But so let's start with um, let's start so with dry needling. Let me do a disclosure first. So um, those of you that are on the chat might know that I am the president of the um, Orthopedic Academy (APTA). Um, and I am not speaking on behalf of the Orthopedic Academy. I am speaking as a clinical professor from Mercer University with a specialty in myofascial pain and dysfunction and the author and editor of the Trigger Point Manual. <laughs> so that's where I'm going to be speaking from tonight. There's a disclaimer, everyone. So he's going to put on that hat and he's going to be wearing that hat only um, for this whole chat. So uh, all, the, all the opinions, all the, the things that he shares is coming strictly from that hat. It's not coming from the orthopedic section. Um, so just like you said. Awesome. Um, so yeah, so if you, if you guys have any questions on dry needling, please drop those in the comments right now because we're going to unpack that topic right now. And I think uh, a good way to start out the kind of the conversation about dry needling is if you could just simply give us a description of what dry needling is and what the theory is behind dry needling. Yeah, so they, you know, Cal, that's a complicated question. Um, you know, we have a um, 
a dry needling work group out of APTA, and we have a, a position statement on what dry needling is, and it's you know the use of a monofilament needle to cause um, changes, neurophysiological changes in the in the human body. So if you look at what's evolved over the years, you know, trigger point dry needling was probably one of the early um, dry needling techniques, but now we have superficial dry needling. We have traditional acupuncture, which uses a monofilament needle as well. You have intramuscular stimulation, so putting e-stim to the needle as well. Um, and then you have uh, trigger point dry needling. So I think, uh, so I think the confusion comes saying dry needling. Uh, where it's kind of like saying manual therapy. So what type of manual therapy? Are you doing a mobilization, a manipulation, uh, soft tissue mobilization? Now we have to ask that question with dry needling, and we have to ask what type of dry needling are you doing? Because there's some evidence to support all of it, and there's more evidence in the trigger point dry needling because of the longevity of that technique um, in clinical practice. Awesome. Awesome. I know, I know like a question that we commonly get from, from individuals uh, across the spectrum. Um, I know Nick has a question right here that he's dropping in, in the Facebook comments. He says, in regards to those who claim acupuncture and dry needling are the same, how do you address this? So kind are of. Are the same or not the same? Who claim that are the same. They are the same thing. Acupuncture and dry needling. Well, uh, I want to say this the right way. <laughs> so I, I think the the issue is that we are using the same tool that the acupuncturist would use, the needle, right? It's called an acupuncture needle, and that's because the FDA has termed that the dry the acupuncture needle. So I think why we use it is much different than why an acupuncturist would use it. So acupuncture Eastern is based on Eastern medicine philosophies, which are based on energy meridians and different um, physiological changes for that. The physical therapist is going to use it as part of the patient client management model. So we're using it as an intervention to augment range of motion, decrease pain, uh, change in muscle force production, connective tissue um, extensibility. So we're just using it for different reasons. And we have to be clear and understand that the acupuncturists do have a scope of practice for acupuncture. We want to make sure that, you know, they use a needle for most of their practice. We use a needle for a very small part of our practice to make a physiological change so we can get our patients moving better and um, back to a, back to functional activities and maybe an exercise program. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. That's it's part of the whole, you know, patient client management model. Yeah. You know, I, I totally agree that it's really part, a very small part uh, of what we do as physical therapists. It's certification. You know, this isn't only what we do. This isn't the only thing that we do. Um, you know, we're movement specialists. We're not, you know, needle specialists. Right. Um, so we need to kind of, you know, interlay that as well. And, you know, remember that this is, you know, a, a small part of our practice. And this is something that we we do, we do with, with, you know, majority of our ortho patients if they, you know, qualify for it, but it still is a small part of our practice. And I know we've still been getting questions, and I know this has kind of been a battle in a lot of states. And, you know, feel free if you don't feel comfortable answering this question, um, no worries at all. Um, you know, could you give like a little bit of a background of the legislation surrounding dry needling and, you know, pushback from, you know, acupuncture providers who may be challenging the, the ability for physical therapists to perform yeah. dry needling in certain states? So, you know, advocacy is so important when you're doing, you know, a new intervention technique that somebody else, another health professional might be doing a similar or the same technique. So people feel threatened um, 
and and want to advocate for what they're doing and, and not advocate for what you want to do. So we always have to be advocates for what, we, what we're trying to do. So the battle has been long. Um, I was in on the uh, grassroots level that we've had dry needling in Georgia since 2004. Um, we uh, were challenged in 2009. The acupuncturists had rewritten their practice act and in the middle of their Eastern medicine philosophy had written in the practice act that dry needling was the practice of acupuncture. So immediately following that, we got cease and desist orders. And because of our relationship with the, um, in the house and the Senate within Georgia, we went and had a meeting and met with the, the, the chair of the health committee told her the unintended consequence of the law. We had dry needling written into our practice act within a week. One week, because of the relationships we had established and the unintended consequence of the law. Um, and then the North Carolina lawsuit that was just settled and uh, determined in the courts that dry needling is in the, in the scope of practice for uh, physical therapy. So I think sometimes we just have to pay attention to how our law is written and, and sometimes we have to take the risk to open our practice act and to advocate for what we can provide for patients to improve their lives, you know, and consumer choice, that consumers deserve the choice to choose a practitioner that they need or they want uh, to, to get their life back in order and their function back uh, to a level that they're happy with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, that creates competition. And I think competition sometimes is actually a good thing, you know, between providers because, you know, hopefully it'll keep the cost down um, through certain interventions, you know, instead of having one select, you know, professional or one select entity do one thing, then the cost is going to be kind of set within that entity, entity. And so, like, if you have multiple different providers doing similar things, you know, maybe you may be able to get a different deal somewhere else. So I think that's a cool point. Absolutely. You know, and when you're dealing with your, your practice act and trying to get it changed, you kind of have to step away from it a little bit and say, you know, you're dealing with politics now and politics is all about relationships. And so if you're thinking you want to do a dry needling um, legislative initiative, you got to start now developing the relationships and start getting those relationships before you start moving for your own agenda. So it doesn't so it's more genuine rather than pushing an agenda. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so we're kind of staying on the advocacy front here. So Sabrina has a question. Uh, thanks for tuning in, Sabrina. Um, she says, what do you think needs to change or happen in order to get all 50 states on board that dry needling is within the physical therapist scope of practice? Oh, boy. Uh, so big I question. Think, yeah, that's a big question. So because we have 50 states and each state has a practice act, um, it, it's a challenge. So uh, I think many states still, it's silent. The state boards have ruled that it's, you know, silent on it, that it's within practice, but not making a ruling. Um, if you get challenged by um, maybe acupuncturists, you know, it may turn out that this, that ruling might change. Um, but I think really it, it's, it's once it becomes an entry level skill that's taught, I think we'll, we'll, we'll be in a better position to do that. Um, and we're probably a few years away from that. So I was on a study group for the FSBPT from the consumer side of it and uh, <clears throat> with Michelle Finnegan and a couple others, Ido Zilstra, and we looked at the competencies uh, in DPT education. And we're, we're missing about, I think, 19 was the total competencies. And they were really based around the needle and needle safety and what to do in emergent situations such as a pneumothorax, how to handle that. So I think as 
curriculum uh, as we look at curriculum and try to say, okay, is this really adding more on or are there places we can add this without increasing the volume of, of material that a DPT uh, entry-level student is, is learning? Um, but, but I do not think students should be doing it in a clinic if they have not been instructed in the technique in the classroom. Right, right. No, and I, I agree with that because, you know, you, you're kind of seeing a lot of things nowadays. So I know that uh, at the next 2018 um, Oxford debate, it was, you know, should PT be involved with nutrition and educating patients on nutrition? And you got to kind of look at the double-edged sword right here because if we're trying to kind of unpack too, too many things into our entry-level education, into our scope of practice, I think it's going to be a lot for us to, to handle. It's going to be a lot for us to know, um, you know, so you kind of kind of look, got to look at that double-edged sword, uh, like you said. And, and knowing your um, knowledge deficits, really, clinically. You know, I'm, I'm not educated in so much nutrition. I can tell you to eat a balanced meal. I can tell you things for, um, you know, osteoporosis, uh, bone density, diet type things. But I'm not going to tell you how to change your diet and your calorie intake and your protein. It's just not my, my wheelhouse. Sure. Uh, but I certainly can refer you to somebody that can help you with that. So I, I think you just have to. Clinical reasoning exposes your knowledge deficits, and I think you just got to be mindful of that and say, okay, you know what, this is out of my my purview. Let me refer you to somebody. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And we'll kind of pivot here too. So um, we have a new question. I think it's from uh, I think it's from Cam. I don't know. He he put it in here, but there's not a name next to it. But he said, can you offer any information for students looking to get into dry needling? Um, with regard to courses to take, because there's, you know, many different courses that offer dry needling. Um, so he says with so sure. many variations of dry needling approaches, there how is. do you navigate the options there? There, there is. Uh, so, you know, I'm just going to go, I am very biased for the dry needling that I do, and that is obvious, right? So if I'm, you know, myofascial pain, trigger point guy, I wrote the book and, you know, have looked at the literature, that's my wheelhouse, and so I think from my perspective and looking from a biomechanical perspective and the balance with the neurophysiological perspective, it makes sense to me because I'm treating the pain system or the neurophysiological processes that are going to change muscle function and movement. So trigger point dry needling makes more sense to me and it fits into my biomechanical training. So I'm always one that I'm going to go towards my biomechanics. And I have to step away and say, oh, wait a minute, maybe I have to access the neurophysiological system to dampen down or ramp down a person's pain response before I can get them moving better and check out their biomechanics. Sure. So that's my um, preference. But there's, you know, there's good quality programs out there. You just have to be smart and you have to um, be judicious. How is it going to fit into your clinical reasoning model, your knowledge, skills, and how is it going to enhance your abilities to take care of a patient who might benefit from dry needling. It is not the panacea that students think it is. It is not that. It's just sexy right now. And if you hear it's not going to be so sexy. Um, you know, spinal manipulation is has much evidence for effectiveness. Manual therapy is all out there. People always say, well, you know, there's no, there's lots of evidence of, of the effect of manual therapy, and especially uh, in the pain world as well and changes in neurophysiological processes. All right, so we're, we're smarter now than we were uh, five years ago with the research. So I just think you have to inquire about the courses. What are you going to learn? Um, and a lot of it's going to be uh, clinic driven. And, and my thing is, you know, everybody doing the same type of dry needling in the clinic is not going to benefit a patient that needs a different dry needling. 
So why not augment each other's skills with the different types of dry needling that are out there mm. and have several clinicians in a clinic trained in different techniques? Yeah, we do it for manual therapy and we do it for exercise and we do it for neuromuscular education. We should do the same thing for for dry needling. Sure. That'll help the clinic, too. You know? And our patients. Right. Yeah. Is it working? Let's let's see if we can go another way. Sure. Yeah, sure. No, no, that's that's a fabulous answer. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for that. Um, I think we're, we'll, we'll kind of focus on trigger point dry needling here. Mm-hmm. So I know there's different techniques for it. I've seen pistoning done. I've seen kind of just insert the needle, just let it stay there, chill out for, for a few minutes. Um, you know, have you done these techniques and how have you kind of seen their patients' responses to, you know, a couple of those techniques? Or So so I'm going to get on a soapbox a little bit, Cal, uh, because when I'm deciding on a technique, it really is related to my clinical reasoning process mm-hmm. and uh, balancing the pathobiology related to tissue and the pathobiology related to the pain, uh, to pain mechanisms. So when I'm thinking about tissue and, you know, is the tissue inflamed, repaired, remodeling, unhealthy, I have to think of the patient's pain presentation. So do they have a peripheral nociceptive presentation where the issues in the tissue? Mm-hmm. Do they have a do they have peripheral sensitization, which is a neuronal response in the periphery with um, increased response to decreased stimulation and only in nociceptive neurons? Do they have a centralized pain state where there's a processing issue where things are amplified in the central nervous system in the neuronal matrix in the spinal cord in the brain? Or is there an output mechanism problem, autonomic, neuro, neuroimmune, neuroendocrine, all those things that affect the outcome? So I think the decision how to needle, when to needle, how much to needle is based on the balance between the pathobiology related to tissue and the pathobiology related to pain mechanisms. So if somebody has a, a trigger point, late, let's say a latent trigger point, which is a palpable top band within skeletal muscle that reproduces an unfamiliar um report of symptoms for a patient. I may do pistoning and get local twitch responses because I'm probably doing that to enhance a movement pattern, mm-hmm. trying to do it to enhance muscle function. So I might get in there, do some pistoning techniques, twitch, 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 do some soft tissue and do some neuromuscular education to get that going. If somebody has a centralized pain state, I'm probably going to really think about do I want to add so much noxious input to the system or do I want to just take a needle and stick it in the area of a trigger point to change the neurophysiological processing in the central nervous system? But I may not piston. I may just leave the needle in situ for three to five minutes and see what the result is. Mm-hmm. Can I change the neurophysiological processing? So you really got to go back to your clinical reasoning, pathobiology related to tissue, pathobiology related to the pain mechanisms. And that's going to guide your your technique right there. So I, I, don't, I just think if that's not there, then people are unknowingly just putting needles into patients and expecting something to change and not predict what they're expecting to change. Sure. Yeah, no, that, those, those are all really, really fabulous points. You really need to go back to the pathoanatomic clinical reasoning, why you're doing that, what method you're using, and kind of use that to back it up. I I, I totally hear you there. Yeah, that's it's great. like the realm, you know, the psychosocial aspects. If somebody has anxiety, if they have worry or um, borderline personality changes or disorders, I mean, that, that all can ramp up or ramp down a pain state. And you're sticking a needle into a human being. And if somebody has a centralized pain state and you're not aware of that, be be aware of releasing the three-headed fire-breathing dragon. <laughs> a situation that you may not be able to control, right? And at, right. At the end of the day, 
you have to be able to try and manage that and predict that. Right, right. And we know the psychosocial. I, I, I remember kind of seeing like, uh, you know, circles with kind of interlaid, you know, mm-hmm. uh, nociceptive or no, nociceptive, nociceptive, and you kind of yeah. have psychosocial as the big overarching circle. Yeah, um, yeah. And- yeah I have a, a great slide that I use that, you know, has peripheral nociceptive, neuropathic pain, nociceptive, um, all relating to pain. And over here I have psychosocial and then uh, movement, coordination, movement impairment. Mm. And so the, how they ramp each one of those areas, ramp up or ramp down a pain mechanism. And those two systems interacting psychosocial and movement coordination, movement impairment play off of each other that can also ramp up a pain system. And sure. then you have your output mechanisms, your autonomic nervous system, neuroimmune, neuroendocrine that are all going to, uh, in addition to the motor system, are going to affect how somebody's going to react and respond to a, a dry needling treatment. Sure, so sure. It's complicated. It's, it's, it's complicated. And, and it is not the panacea that students think it is. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm still a student still. So I'm learning a lot here. Um, it's, it's way more complicated than, than we all know it to be right now. It's, it's yeah. like you, like you said in earlier in the chat, it's very sexy. Um, yeah. it's, it seems very upfront. You know, if they have a taught band, you know, needle yeah. it and then they'll get better. But, uh, yeah. You know, so when, I, when our students here, Cal, when our, my students come in and ask me about it, I'm like, well, let's start with palpation. Can you palpate the trigger point? Can you find it? Okay. So let's try some manual techniques. So let's do some contract, relax, hold, relax. Let's talk about how you can do it manually because you really need to assess whether you're going to stick a needle in a human being. You're, you're taking your level of practice to a whole nother level when you make the decision to get the needle and stick it in into the trigger point. There's a risk with that, and you have to be ready for the risk. Fat, fabulous. There's still, risk, but there's still a risk involved. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't. I couldn't unpack that any better. That was a that, that's a fabulous response. It, it's it's so true. You are you are sticking a needle. You know, it's an invasive. It's an invasive procedure. You know, it's an invasive thing. So, like you said, you got to be you know you got to be cognizant that you might unleash the the fire breathing dragon with three right. three heads um, right. coming at you, coming at your heart. So, uh, so, yeah, keep that in mind, students. When you get out there, you want to get certified in dry needling. Um, definitely keep all the the awesome awesome things that Joe's um, you know just said. Keep those in mind. And if you're on a clinical and your CI wants you to dry needle and you have not been trained in it in your classroom, you should not be doing it. Yep. I don't care. I don't care what they say. You should not be doing it. Right. Yeah. Especially the uh, like tissues that are you know near the lungs, yeah. upper trap near the lungs, pneumothorax, you know, spinal cord, those those types of things, especially. Yeah. You know, but, but even even if you haven't been trained in it in general, definitely not a smart idea. If your CI um, wants you to do it on them and they want to train you and you're going to you know, do your needling technique on your CI. I'm all about that, but not mm-hmm. on a patient. It's sure. Risky. Great point. Great point, Joe. That's fabulous. Um, so we have another question from Nick. He says, how do you approach um, those, those individuals um, who argue that by working on trigger points, you know, through dry needling, through different intervent, different, you know, interventions to, to combat those trigger points um, that you're reinforcing a maladaptive co- coping strategy or like a passive approach to care? How do you argue against those individuals? I think he's kind of getting on passive modalities, um, doing too too much of that. Yeah. So again, I'm going to come back to the clinical reasoning process, pathobiology related to tissue and pathobiology related to the pain system. Peripheral nociceptive, neuropathic, central sensitization, autonomic, you know, motor movement coordination. So So the issue is in your clinical reasoning process, if you feel that the trigger points are a source of symptoms or a contributing factor to the patient's movement impairments, then the decision might be to treat the trigger point 
reasoning about the procedure, if I put this needle in this trigger point, I should see improved muscle coordination, muscle activation patterns, therefore a better performance of neuromuscular education. Then I have to reason about my teaching. My teaching is that this person has to be able to augment that technique by performing the neuromuscular re-education retraining exercises at home. And I have to know that I need to educate them on their postural positions, sleeping, standing, sitting, lying, because positions of prolonged shortening or prolonged lengthening of that muscle will reactivate or aggravate those trigger points. The other thing that people do not look, and it's a common clinical mistake, is not looking at the functional muscle unit, which is the agonistic muscle, its synergist, and the antagonistic muscle groups. So you can't just palpate an infraspinatus trigger point and say, I'm going to put a needle in it without evaluating the antagonistic muscles, your internal rotators, your pecs, your lats, your teres major, to see which one is driving each other. And they all have a very similar um, innervation strategy of C5, C, C4, C5, C6. So there's mm -hmm. also that neurophysiological input. So I think you just got to balance that. Sometimes you have to do manual therapy techniques to augment a movement pattern or to augment an exercise program. Sure, sure. And I think he, he was also trying to get at. So that's that's only that's not what we're doing alone. We're gonna you know emphasize movement patterns. We're gonna emphasize therapeutic yeah. exercise, neuromuscular reeducation. You know, as an as a as a supplement to what we've done with the trigger. Exactly. So I also got it. I also believe that we have to change our mindset sometimes. So sometimes we are doing a real rehabilitation process, and sometimes we have a service. And if a patient gets relief of their symptoms, let's say with some trigger point dry needling, and that is all they want, I have to wrap my head around they want that service from me. However, I have the conversation that this is a cash-based payment now because your insurance company pays for rehabilitation, not maintenance of, of their pain condition, and patients will pay that. So it's just turning a different hand on and saying, I am providing a service for a patient that gets results from this passive treatment because they don't want to engage in active exercise and active training. They, or they have a condition that's chronic that requires them to have some dry needling. So I just, you know, we can't expect 100% of patients to exercise and do everything we ask them to do. There are patients that don't have time or are not motivated or just not ready to do that, that we provide a service. So you just change your head around. I'm providing a service that a healthcare consumer wants and it keeps them functioning, it keeps them happy, and it keeps them resilient. It's something so you're- I look at it. It's yeah. something you're very good at, Joe. Putting on yeah. different hats, you know. Different hats, them yeah. You know, after after 35 years, man, I got a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> got but, like but you know, Kyle, it took me many years to get that. It took me many years talking to different colleagues in different professions. They just couldn't get why we are so hung up about you know these passive things. If a patient wants it and they get better because of it, and they need it to function, why don't you give it to them? And if they're willing to pay for it. Why not? Why not? I just think it's a different conversation. Sure. Absolutely. Like a different hat. It's a different yeah. conversation. You got it. Absolutely. Awesome. Uh, so you, we have a question from a very, very familiar person to you from Luke Sigmund. Um, oh, I'm sorry. But, you know, he's a graduate and uh, this is the student assembly um, uh, live Facebook feed. Isn't that correct? 
That is certainly correct. Okay, that's good. I'm just giving it back. Come on, Luke. Awesome. So he's well. First of all, he says, "P.S. Hi, Joe." He wants to let you know he says hi. You should be studying, man. (laughs) So he says, "What is your take on homeostatic nerve point dry needling, treating the interface in all reality?" Uh, I would have to say that I do not know anything about that. I don't even know what a homeostatic point is. So I can't. So I would be. So my clinical reasoning just now opened up a knowledge deficit for me. I don't know what that is, so I'm not going to make a comment on that. Awesome. Maybe. Sorry, if we, <laughs> sorry Luke. Hey, if he wants to clarify in the comments, if um, you know, maybe maybe it'll jog your memory. If you have experienced it before, it just was under a different name. Um, you can definitely do that, and we could uh, we could revisit that um, later. But I think we'll let's unpack one more question about dry needling, and then we'll kind of move on myofascial pain syndrome and see what we can uh, see what we can talk about there. Um, so, you know, what do, this is kind of like an overarching question. So what is the current literature and you don't need to like cite specifics, you know, studies or anything like that, but you know, what is the current literature, the current research saying about trigger point dry needling? Like, you know, what is the actual literature saying? Yeah. So, so the, you know, the literature is all over the place on dry needling. So if you read three different articles on dry needling, it's very difficult to discern what the technique was, right? So if they got a local twitch response, how many times did they piston or how many times did they get the twitch response? Some articles just show that the needle was put in situ. They don't tell you that they palpated for the trigger point or identified it. Other articles have specifically identified it. So the research, there is evidence to support it. The problem now is being able to compare studies with, with, with the dry needling because they're so different. So I think it's being a consumer of the literature and actually looking at it. So, so the trigger point uh, dry needling literature is, is pretty vast. It's been out there a lot. It's not powerful. Um, so you're not going to have a lot of uh, random control trials with a lot of patients involved in it. Um, but the studies that are out there are in small numbers, maybe mm-hmm. 15, 20 patients. Uh, hard to have a control group. Um, they might. There's a couple crossover studies that show uh, good success. Um, but again, I, I think it's it's making sure that it's balanced with your clinical reasoning and your clinical decision making of why you're doing it. Right. Right. Yeah. It always circles back to that. But there there is a lot of evidence. Uh, you know, there's there's a ton of evidence um, in non uh, PT journals. Uh, so mm. the European Pain Journal, uh, some of the stuff in you know Pain Journal itself. Um, uh, uh, out of a uh, journal of body work and uh, manual therapies, uh, movement therapies. There's articles that appear there as well, but we're not going to see a lot of that stuff in like RJOSPT sure. or JMMT because those are high impact journals now. And so you have to have high level research to get in there and the, and the dry needling studies just aren't there yet. They're going to be, but they're, they're, they're creeping up. So that's why we don't see a lot of them. Um, and, and part of, you know, when you look at clinical practice guidelines as well, you know, very rarely is muscle ever even mentioned as a source of symptoms uh, in in the um, clinical practice guidelines. Um, and that's just because when they're writing clinical practice guidelines, there might be one uh, refereed or um, peer-reviewed article about trigger points in certain muscles for their So it doesn't have enough weight yet to get into the clinical practice guideline. Mm-hmm. So, so I think those are some of the struggles that I have with clinical practice guidelines is that they don't include muscle and as a source of symptoms for patients' uh, reported symptoms. So that, that onus is on me. 
I still use the clinical practice guidelines for the evidence they have. The onus is my clinical expertise and knowledge, which is, you know, if you look at Sackett's levels of, of, of evidence, I'm level five, self-proclaimed expert, clinical, clinician for 35 years. I bring evidence to the table. Right. Like, on past clinical experiences. So that's that's the onus is on us to incorporate muscle pain and referral patterns and trigger points into those clinical practice guidelines so we can move forward. Sure. No, I, that's that's great. That's uh, that's awesome. Awesome. So I think we'll kind of pivot a little bit. We'll we'll pivot into myofascial pain syndrome. We got like another 22 minutes because adrenaline trigger points, we're kind of having them together, we're kind of interlaying them together. So uh, I think we'll try to unpack this a little bit. So I think just kind of simply starting out um, can you describe just what myofascial pain syndrome is and maybe how you can interlay trigger point or dry needling, trigger point dry needling yeah. into myofascial pain yeah. syndrome? So, so myofascial pain syndrome truly is the presence of trigger points in muscle that are causing a patient um, regional or widespread pain. So, so for somebody to have myofascial pain syndrome, they have to have trigger points, and whether that's active or latent, uh, the presence of active or latent trigger points. So there's lots of conditions out there that um, that myofascial pain syndrome is involved with. So if you looked at your patients with uh, migraine, uh, tension-type headaches, TMJ dysfunction, epicondylalgia, neck pain, carpal tunnel syndrome, uh, if people have radicular pain or radiculopathy, you're going to see associated trigger points with them. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if somebody has a C5 radicular pain, mm -hmm. you're going to find trigger points and more than likely active trigger points in the supraspinatus, in the infraspinatus, in the teres minor, in the biceps, in the brachialis, all those muscles that are innervated by C5 because the neurogenic outflow of the substance P calcitonin G-related peptide uh, antidromically is just setting up those muscles for dysfunction. Mm -hmm. so you can treat those muscles all you want. You can needle them to death if you want. But unless you take care of the ridiculous pain, they're just going to come back. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, if I was going to treat those patients, I would treat them to take the edge off the pain because the trigger points are now actually adding, adding on to their pain experience. So in my clinical reasoning, I'm going to say, I'm going to treat these trigger points in this infrastructure. It's not going to take your pain away, but it's going to give you some pain relief for a little while. While I get them to the doctor for an epidural or a dose pack or, or some other intervention so we can control the neurogenic inflammation. So right. you just gotta understand what's driving the myofascial pain syndrome. Um, and, 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 you know, diets, um, hypothyroidism, there's lots of other things that drive myofascial pain syndrome, um, crazy. Uh, and, you know, you have to be able to predict what the response is by treating the trigger points. If it's not happening, it's up to you to decide and investigate what are the other contributing factors or comorbidities that could be driving this. Right. Uh, and hormonal imbalances. Um, you can have vitamin uh, B1 deficiencies, vitamin B12 deficiencies, hypothyroidism. There's a whole host of uh, systemic perpetuating factors that, that we need to be able to investigate when somebody isn't responding to an intervention. So there's many conditions that have myofascial pain syndrome associated with that. Endometriosis, pelvic pain, you know, that's, um, there's, there's, there's articles that show that if somebody has abdominal trigger points, it can be a high predictor of pelvic floor or visceral dysfunction below. Wow. You know, there's some studies that show that. If somebody has uh, tenderness um, to their glute medius and you're thinking they have radicular, it is a predictor of radicular pain. Wow. 
So you're thinking somebody has ridiculous pain. There are some studies, there's two strong studies that show that patients with ridiculous, identified ridiculous pain um, who ha were also had L4, L5 tenderness in the trigger points in the glute medius and glute minimus. There was a very strong correlation. So treating the, the trigger points there is going to just ramp down the pain, but it's not going to help the pain. Right. Compared to ridiculous pain. So I just think right. how people, everybody has trigger points. Yes, they do. Because we all sit poorly, we all move poorly, we all exert our muscles, whatever. But when when do they become a problem for you to 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 make sure that you're managing them? Right. The question. And are you and are you asking the tough questions about when somebody has widespread pain? Is it a central central sensitization? Is it myofascial pain syndrome? Is it fibromyalgia? Mm -hmm. Right. So fibromyalgia. Those uh, those individuals are living in a centralized pain state. And they do have myofascial pain syndrome associated with that, but they don't respond very well to stretching and exercise and all that because their system is sensitized. Mm -hmm. So graded exercise, graded exposure for those individuals is going to help their tolerance sure. to activity rather than us stretching them and exercising them and pushing them because right. they're in a centralized pain state. Right. And so that's trigger points is going to help ramp down their symptoms a little bit. But it also could help ramp it up. Right. So balancing that and knowing when, when to push and when not to push. Because there you're kind of getting at more of like the peripheral, you know, nociceptive um, type of pain. But if someone like you're, like you're saying, centrally sensitized, you know, it's not necessarily going to help them. Like you said, it, maybe you could even, you know, cause an increase in symptoms. Right. right. Especially if somebody's allodynic or has regional allodynia and you're, you're trying to stretch them or do soft tissue, it's like, stop it. That's all that's all most susceptible input to the system is going to make a more painful response. Sure. I think it's balancing it and, and it does exist. I uh, our clinic here is a lot of patients with myofascial pain syndrome that come in and there are secondary responses. And we do very well with them and getting them to the right physicians for the right uh, guidance on um, um, interventional injections or uh, TFESIs or, or dose packs or um, getting some physicians to do uh, vitamin panels. You know, vitamin panels are so important for people. Right. Especially with chronic uh, persistent pain states. I know, uh, I know you mentioned injections. So I know, I know I kind of developed this question um, from before the chat, but have you had any, have you had any experience with trigger point injections and, you know, have you, have you found that they've been worked with some patient, maybe not worked with other patients? What has your experience been with the trigger yeah, point injections? I, I think the, uh, the challenge with trigger point injections is the palpation. So mm -hmm. you have to be skilled at your palpation to find trigger points. And if you are not and you're just injecting, and one of the reasons we moved the X's in the book, I don't know if you've seen the old volume of the book, the old volume of the book had muscles with X's. Mm -hmm. So many physicians were, who are doing injections would just inject according to where the X was in the picture in the book on their patient. So we remove the X's because you have to palpate from origin insertion, find the palpable top band and the most tender spot in the top band, and then isolate it and then inject in a pretty much a clock, clock like fashion. So you're getting the three dimensional space. Mm -hmm. So yes. So trigger point injections do do work just like dry needling, but you should be going for the twitch response and the, uh, maybe the reproduction of symptoms for the patient. Sure. Yeah. So you put, you know, you put uh, lidocaine or procaine in a muscle, it's going to feel much better than dry needling. Right, right. Of course. Makes sense. <laughs> the myelin and nerves, so it's not going to be as painful, but it really is about the palpation. 
at this scale. Awesome. Good, good. Now I have that in my 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 uh, clinical reason, my toolbox. That's awesome. Awesome. So Jake, he, Jake, uh, going back to you know myofascial pain syndrome for a second, he says, what resources are there? Or do you have any tips for communicating to patients about your know, myofascial pain syndrome um, if they're presenting with the, you know symptoms or just educating them about their condition in general? I know you kind of hit on like the cause yeah. and symptoms. Yeah. So uh, you know I'm going to go back to the book. Um, Sort of my, Tra- Travell Simons and Simons Myofascial Pain and Dysfunction, the True Report Manual, the third edition, where I'm the editor and contributing author. Uh, each one of the muscle chapters in the corrective actions of each one is written in patient-friendly language. Mm. So Dave Simons was real big on this book had to be written in a way that the lay person could get into it and read about it because what do they do when nobody believes them? What do they do when a physician or a physical therapist does not believe in muscle pain and trigger points? So the the first parts of the chapter are very scientific, but the last section of each chapter is called corrective actions is written in lay uh, lay language. So a patient could take that book, open it up and start do, doing some self-treatment, whether it's pressure release uh, techniques or some uh, contract relax stretching or post-isometric relaxation, and then very... Um, specific postural positions for each muscle that Mm -hmm. the patient can get. So I'm going to say from a selfish standpoint, we worked really hard at this book to make it an all-in-one interdisciplinary as well as for patient-friendly language in Mm -hmm. in the chapters. So good to get the book. (laughs) (laughs) You got to get the book to read it, right? But online, you just got to be careful uh, and make sure you always read what's online before you tell somebody to go online to get the information. So it's accurate. Yeah, no, I'm a big cul- I'm a big culprit of that. I always look at WebMD, and they always tell me I have cancer. So, uh, <laughs> you know, if you have low back pain, you either have a kidney problem or you have cancer. So that's why you're know, going online. You know, maybe not the best thing to tell your patients, right? That's right. And there's a chapter in the book called "Systemic Perpetuating Factors" that, mm-hmm. that talks about hypothyroidism and different vitamin deficiencies and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and, and many other things that can coexist with with myofascial pain syndrome. Fabulous, fabulous. Yeah, I wanted to ask you as well, you know, I know what, at least it's at Sacred Heart, I'm sure a bunch of other universities out there, we were taught some osteopathic type of techniques for, you know, myofascial management, myofascial um, pain management, like ischemic compression is, a, is an osteopathic technique. Um, how, what is your kind of experience with these and how, how effective do you find them in the toolbox for physical therapists? Yeah, so we, we uh, in the book, we, uh, we lost the term ischemic uh, compression based on some of the scientific studies that show that trigger points are already ischemic and hypoxic. Mm. So why would you want to cause more ischemia and hypoxia? So we've gone with the term pressure release, which is just a little pressure over over the trigger point area um, where the patient might report of some symptoms and then augment that with some some hold relax techniques or contract relax techniques and slowly moving the person through the range of motion. So just different, it's semantics. It's just different language, but the ischemic compression we've lost. So now right. it's pressure release only because of the studies that have come out showing the, um, the hypoxia and the ischemia that occurs in a trigger point region of the muscle. Fabulous. Yeah, that, 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 that's great to know. And I, I didn't know that. So that's a that's another great thing. And I, and I hope a lot of other you know students who are tuning in right now, maybe even, you know, fresh PTs, new grad PTs, PTAs, um, hope they're getting a lot of great information because, um, you know, Joe's been unpacking a lot for us right here. And it's, it's really been fabulous. So hope you all are getting great information because because um, I know I am. I hope so, I'm giving you good information. Oh, you absolutely are. You absolutely are. I know I'm, I'm personally learning, you know, a ton. 
Um, so yeah, so we have 10 minutes left. So if anyone has any kind of last minute questions, you know, Jeff Lee, uh, try to buzz those right in the comments. Um, we'll get them, we'll get them up here. We're going to try to probably do one or, or two more questions. I think, um, then we'll kind of, we'll start winding down. Um, so, you know, having found that, I, I guess kind of, you know, putting the book to a side for a second, have you found any other resources that are helpful in the evaluation or management, um, for someone with mild fascial pain syndrome? Is there any other techniques that you've learned, um, that may help this individual, you know, maybe some, you know, relaxation techniques, cognitive techniques, some yeah. things like that. You know, I, I think it, it, for me, it all comes down to, you know, again, I'm going to come back to clinical reasoning, right? And the pathology of right. tissue, the pain mechanisms, source of symptoms, contributing factors. Um, and one question I like to ask patients, like, like the pain question, is I ask them a stress question. You know, zero to 10, stress at home. Zero being no stress, 10 being the worst stress ever. Give me a number. Mm-hmm. Work stress. Zero, str- zero, 10 being the worst, and then your social life. And a lot of times you'll find out that people are really stressed at home, stressed at work, and they don't have a social life. Right. right. So, now, so now you have a, a just a gasoline right there kind of fueling the fire. So I kind of talked to them about, is there anything we can do um, to decrease the stress? No, my boss is a pain in the butt, and they won't give me a break or whatever, so we're not changing work. Is there anything we can do at home? No, I'm, you know, my husband travels all over. My wife travels all the time. I have to get the kids here and there. Okay, so we have to find something. To so that person, maybe some mindfulness, some deep breathing, just nothing difficult but to add more stress, but something that can ha- actually help them decrease their stress and manage their day a little better. So when your boss is giving you the, you know what, you kind of take a deep breath, Take one minute to do some deep breathing and exhalation and be and be mindful of the of the situation at hand and not be worried about tomorrow or, or worrying about the next thing. Um, so, so I think making sure that, you know, we don't treat all these conditions differently. We use a clinical reasoning process that's going to help us come up with a collective decision making to help manage the patient. Right. Right. And like you said, we have to take all those confounding variables and buffers, you know, into effect, Absolutely. Um, you Absolutely. know, and, you know, as we, you know, we've all kind of, you know, be, being a dead horse at this point, but you got to individualize all, you know, treatment of your patients, you know. Yeah. And, cl- and clinical reasoning requires you to pull in research evidence, contextual evidence, experiential evidence. But the most important is patients, values and circumstances. We can never forget that as evidence-based practice. Patients' values and circumstances combined with right. experiential, contextual, and best available research evidence, not just mm-hmm. research. So sometimes when people say, what's the evidence? Well, what do you mean? The research evidence? Okay, I can give you some research evidence or the contextual or experiential evidence or the patient's values and circumstances. Just mm-hmm. never never forget that. Patients' right. values and circumstances Patient's perspective is so important to never lose uh, perspective on. EBP is a three-legged stool, right? You've got to take Whoa. in <laughs> clinical expertise, research, and yeah. their values and expectations. It ties back to what you said, um, you know, about if, if they want it, they want if they want dry needling, is it's just, you know, a separate, you know, a separate treatment, a, se- a separate sure. session. You know, they want to pay out of pocket, then separate service, then, then you go by that, you know. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, we got a question about stress. I just saw, I just saw it in here. It's from Catherine McLeland. She says, in addressing patient stress, what are your thoughts on addressing sleep quality and sleep quantity? Oh, absolutely, right? If you're not sleeping, you're not healing. Um, so you know, I 
I like to give people strategies before bed. Lose the screen. No TV in their bedroom. No <laughs> cell phone by the phone so you can pick up and get a text message. No blue lights. Students, no blue lights. Make sure you have the filter on there. Um, and having some type of ritual before bed, some type of way to relax, whether it's a shower, a warm shower, a warm bath, um, whatever it is that really gets you into a restful night's sleep. Um, so if you're not, again, if you're not sleeping, you're not healing. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's good. It's, it's great responses. Really, really awesome. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think that's, uh, I think that's great. I think that's good enough for tonight. I think we've got some awesome, awesome things answered. Um, you know, we really dug deep into myofascial pain syndrome, trigger points, um, you know, and dry needling. So, you know, Joe, I really want to thank you for, for coming on the October exchange chat. It really, really was a pleasure to have you on. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to do it. Absolutely. And it, it's totally it, it's totally up to you, Joe. But do you mind sharing your email if anyone has any questions about trigger points or if they have it, want any sure. follow up questions to uh, the chat? Yeah. So um, so I'm going to give you one caveat. If you send me an email and I don't respond, please do not hesitate to send a second one because <laughs> it just gets down in the paper and I'm very slow at, at typing. Uh, so my email is Donnelly, D-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y underscore jm at mercer.edu. Awesome. And just for everyone to remember, and I'll, I'll emphasize this for you again, Joe, make, just got to make sure that he has the hat on, clinical professor, clinical education. Um, he's speaking from his expertise, what he's seen in his patients. He's not speaking on behalf of the ortho section, ortho academy. Um, so, yeah, so just trying to, you know, put that in there as well. Uh, but, yeah, so everyone, thank you so much for joining us. And I think we had a, we had a really awesome chat, really good to, you know, divulge deep into these uh, these awesome topics, and you know, hopefully we can uh, we can all buy the book because I know I'm very I'm very interested. I'm definitely going to purchase the book. Uh, you know, once the funds come in, <laughs> and a lot of other sales. Watch the sale price. <laughs> watch yes. Amazon. Watch Amazon, everyone. Right. Right. Got to see. You got to get to see the trends. I don't know. Right. Awesome. So yeah, everyone, thank you so much for joining, um, and thank you, Joe, again, and uh, we'll see y'all next time. We'll see y'all next right. month in, uh, in November. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you, everyone.